Hey everyone, my name is Maggie Tang. And I'm Elena Cho. And welcome to Gourmand, a show set on empowering the next generation of food lovers and leaders. Welcome to 2021, and what a crazy start to the year it's been. This is our last episode in our first season of Sweet Treats, and we're excited to say that we're wrapping up with Paula Velez. She's the executive pastry chef at Maidon, Compass Rose, and La Bodega Bakery in Washington, D.C. She's also the co-founder of Baker's Against Racism, which led the world's largest bake sale. Paula was nominated this past year for the James Beard Foundation's Rising Star Award and won the 2020 Rammy Award for Pastry Chef of the year. In this episode, we chat with Paula about storytelling and culture through the lens of food, bakers against racism, and the future of the restaurant industry, all while Paula is baking burnt tahini cookies in the background like the working pastry chef she is. Let's dig in. Uh, welcome to Gourmand, Paula. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. Um, so let's dig right in. We wanted to start off uh, with a little about you and your upbringing. Um, so we were wondering if you could tell us a bit about that, where you grew up, and kind of how food fed into your childhood. Yeah, so I'm from the Bronx. Um, I was born and raised there. Um, it's kind of funny because everything that I do now centers that a little bit. Before I was trying to kind of like prove that I was not just from the Bronx, but now I'm embracing it, you know what I mean? Um, New York City has taught me so much and has given me so much. So it's almost like a, a thank you love letter that I, I work on every day to, uh, you know, just represent New York City and the Bronx and everything that uh, I grew up with. What were some of your favorite things about growing up there and some kind of, of the lessons you feel like you pulled from that? I think it's just the community, right? Being a part of uh, something bigger than yourself is so important. And um, that's what the Bronx really taught me, you know? Um, everybody knew each other and everybody, you know, was kind to each other. So, yeah, I hold that very dear to my heart. So, what led you to decide that you did end up wanting to go into the restaurant industry um, and kind of follow that path? Um, it's actually uh, my anxiety. I, I couldn't um, imagine kind of fulfilling my other kind of passions. Like, I guess profitably, I, you know, if I wanted to be an artist, I thought I would have to, you know, pass before I could get recognized, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, back then, I didn't know that that was, you know, forms of anxiety. Yeah, and what was, were some of your, their first jobs that you had in New York? I just went back to my um, normal, um, like my family's restaurant. Um, I found a safe place there. And then once I felt like I could move on, I did. Yeah, I love that idea of kind of, I think it's really great that you had this sort of, like you said, a safe place within that industry to kind of start to come into your own and and start to figure out that professional path um, while surrounded by that familiarity, it sounds like. Um, So you said that you started in savory. What was your sort of launch pad into the world of pastry and sweets? I just um, applied to work with Jacques Torres, you know, I just said, hey, um, you know, I'm doing all this stuff, savory, but I would like to learn. Um, I'm willing to start over. And he um, took me in. And that's how that started. It wasn't like, I don't know, like I didn't train a bunch. I just learned as I went. 
and Zach really, um, Jonathan Shakowski really took me under their wing. Oh, wow. Why did you want to pursue chocolate? Like, what prompted that decision? Um, I thought it was beautiful work. Um, and also, if you remember anything about that time, um, everything was, like, TV-based. Um, and there's a lot of shows on, like, chocolate work and, like, sugar work. And, um, yeah, I, I just thought, why not? Let me try, you know? And that kind of opened up the door to working with one of the best chocolatiers. Yeah. No, it's so true. I, I'm now having kind of vivid memories of watching those, you know, Food Network Challenge and stuff where they would do all the crazy sugar work and someone would always burn themselves. And it was yeah. definitely very of the time. Yeah, yeah. And having worked in, I guess, different sectors of the industry, what were some of the things that you noticed that were different from pastry versus savory? Or what are some of the key takeaways that you had? They both required hard work and patience. And that's exactly what, you know, both industries in in that respect need, right? Right. Um, at the beginning of your career, um, a lot of your success is going to be based on how much you are committed to just listening and learning. And that humility um, took me very far. Um, and that's not saying like let people take advantage or let people um, treat you less than, right? Because those two things are not synonymous. Um, but I feel like in just taking time to listen and take in and write down everything that Chef Josh, Chef Ken, and Chef Hossi, um were trying to teach me, uh, there's nothing that I could have learned in school that amounts to that. And I think considering a lot of our listeners, I think, are similar age to Maggie and me and our kind of students or young people who are looking to get started on their paths, it's a great piece of advice for them to take away um is kind of finding that balance between you know still standing up for yourself but, but really listening um yeah definitely um and so after your fun adventure in new york um we know that you moved to dc can you tell us a little bit more about um moving there and the pastry adventure that you're currently on um i reset. I, I didn't go into DC thinking that I was this amazing pastry sous chef. I just humbly applied to pastry chef positions and I worked my way back up. Um, would I have been able to maybe amount to more quickly, or maybe five years ago? But in um, coming here, what I've been trying to do is build legacy. Or Rose. What the heck? Sorry, guys. Hold on. Oh, my goodness. And for our <laughs> listeners, um, we're talking to Paula. She's, you know, living out her life as a pastry chef at my dawn um, and rolling cookies, which is pretty cool. <laughs> what are you making? Um, burnt tahini cookies. I'm rolling them in sesame seeds. It's a, a new offering for the my dan program. Fan or like the um, vent system just like shut down and I was like oh my goodness uh usually usually when I'm here by myself I get spooked because I'm a scaredy cat so <laughs> it's nice that you guys are on the other line 
for us, <laughs> I would have been very scared. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to build something for um, that program that is bigger than me. Mm-hmm. So when I, this, these cookies I've been working on for five months. Um, wow. And it has like layers of like um, espresso, brown butter, milk chocolate, and then it's covered in um, sesame seeds. Um, and there's like a uh, little bit of tahini in the batter as well. Not a little bit, a lot of bit of tahini in the batter. Um, but yeah, there's just like so many umami notes and, and it's just like, unlike any cookie that we've ever experienced. Um, I try not to have favorites, but this is one of my favorites. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it sounds amazing. I feel like, and I feel like we think of cookies as these kind of like simple things that you know are one flavor or something I love the idea of layering all of those different flavors into into a cookie I think um a lot of pastry chefs they they forget that you can treat pastries as if it were food you know um you don't just have a salad that is all lettuce right so why should your dessert be all sugar so that's how I look at these little guys (laughs) <laughs> they sound really good. You said they take took five months, like you were working on them for five months. How did you get inspired to make them? And like, what was that process like? Um, For me, it's whenever I, I create recipes, it's just about feeling, right? Um, my dad is a lot about feeling um, like you're transported somewhere. And when you sit down, right? The first thing you realize, you know, before COVID is like, I'm not in DC anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so in making these cookies, you know, I wanted to have a representation of Rose. Uh, she didn't know I was making these cookies. I just like presented it to her after a while. And then she was like, what is this? This is amazing, you know? Um, but, uh, when you think of like somebody's story, you think of like the resiliency and like their journey and trajectory and how do you encapsulate that in one bite? So um, Rose is interesting and she's strong and she, you know, is running two successful restaurants. Um, She's the only woman in DC who has a Michelin star, you know? Um, So that, that deserves something that like merits legacy. Um, so yeah, that's how I, I kind of like came up with these cookies. Half of it is recipe, half of it is emotion. Yeah, yeah, and what a, it explains why the cookies are so complex and, you know, the flavors sound so beautiful. It's got such a powerful inspiration behind it. Um, and I guess back to uh, uh, Compass Rose, and uh, I've been keeping up with kind of things on Instagram and uh, saw that uh, La Bodega Bakery has some really amazing baked goods and um, would just love to learn a little bit more about like the initiative behind that and kind of your um, your goals with that. Yeah, I, I think La Bodega Bakery is just one of those things that is pretty serendipitous. Like I didn't um, expect it to be more than um, here in these walls and it's growing so rapidly and so uh, beautifully it was created to bring on my uh, pastry team uh, so that we could have some sort of budget 
to have them here. Um, uh, normally, typically, I wouldn't engage in uh, that type of like, I guess I call it bravery. Um, but it's awesome to kind of like create something when everything feels like it's failing around us, you know? Yeah. Um, it's pretty brave for all of us to even engage in that. Um, and it's nice to um, have in the middle of a pandemic bring up like, bring on my team, you know what I mean? Like that was nice, you know what I mean? Yeah, what are your some, some of your favorite things you've created there with the team? Um, so it, we take like, traditional things that you never would have seen in different flavors and just try to infuse them with like odd pairings right um i think it's a exploration um through like classic new york city desserts but through my lens and my heritage and palette um and oftentimes sometimes nikki and beyonder's palette too um they have a lot of fun with the donut flavors um <laughs> i've let them take my recipe to wild heights um, so that they have a creative outlet as well. Um, but yeah, we have our dulce leche babka. Um, that was hard to figure out because dulce leche is so runny, but we did it. Um, and then we have a guava and cheese babka. I really like um, using like different variations of like ube and pandan. So Folks were really excited about that um, when I was uh, when we like launched the um, ube uh, egg tart and then we did um, like pandan boxes. You know, like people were like, "That's pretty cool." I was like, "Absolutely, it's delicious." <laughs> you know, um, but I think it's really more so about introducing flavors that people would have never normally. Um, gotten outside of their own cultures, right? Like um, here on 14th Street where Compass Road is located, um, people might not know, you know, um, that you could eat guava and cheese together in a way that makes, that's not like a throwaway. For us, it was like, I did a campaign with like Borson or something like that. And people were like, oh my God, cheese and desserts. And I'm like, well, uh, everybody else in the world uses cheese and desserts, you know what I mean? So I guess it's like making sure that our heritages are represented in a way that isn't exotic. It's not exotic. You know, it's normal. It's normal day-to-day -day life. Yeah. And I think it's so cool how like your recipe isn't like inspired by a mix of culture. How do you, what are your thoughts on like being able to tell stories with your food and like, just like, what they represent rather than just like making something delicious um i think it's super important because it, it generationally for all of our especially immigrant culture we've all held food to a different regard you know um food connects us to our motherlands and um being able to tell that story respectfully without appropriation is um powerful you know, um, what I do isn't to do it, to like do it. Like, I don't want to make a recipe and then call it, I don't know, something that it's not, you know. Um, if it's supposed to be one thing, 
that's okay. I'm going to be, I'm going to make it as traditional as possible. But if it's a riff, you know, I explain that right away. I'm like, hey, you know, this is a riff. This is in, taking inspiration from this. But I think um, maybe some, sometime last year, people were asking, they were like, how do you know when you're appropriating? Right. And um, I, I told them, if you have to ask a question, you've already gone too far, you know? Um, and that's how I feel. Like, I told the line. I respect, I learn the dishes that I'm making in its original format. And then I, I see how far I can take flavor uh, without impacting the dish as a whole. Or trying to say, I reinvented the wheel, you know? Yeah. Um, which is similarly what I think um, a lot of like first generation, second generation, or even just immigrants that come to this country feel. We feel like we are trying to figure out who we are culturally uh, as Americans and as people who have different heritages and taking something that we think we know as one thing and infusing it with culturally relevant products is deep, like it'll connect you deeper to a bigger um, portion of the population that feels the same way. You know, um, first generation Americans, we're all confused. <laughs> you know, we're, we're trying to figure out where we fit in. And um, if I can give some peace with food, then I think I've done well. Yeah, no, I think that's really powerful. And I think that question of, you know, where that line between appropriation and a riff for an appreciation is so important to talk about um, and to educate ourselves about both within the food industry and then, you know, obviously in the world at large. Um, and, but so important in the food industry because food does hold that special role within our culture and society of, you know, being capable of so many amazing things like connection um, and storytelling. So shifting a bit, um, so you've obviously been doing amazing work within the restaurant world, um, but we wanted to talk also about your work with Bakers Against Racism, which I'm sure most of our listeners have heard of, but was um, and is a worldwide bake sale um, held virtually that has raised to this date, I think, either almost $2 million or over $2 million, um, which is amazing. It's over now. Wow. But we, we don't, um, don't count it. Um, more so than just to keep track, yeah. but we don't do it for the money, right? Like we don't do it um to prove that we are the biggest X Y Z. Uh, some people like to know, but others, you know, they just do it because they found during the pandemic everybody found themselves kind of baking, and um, it was kind of like nice to use that skill set that people kind of amass to do something that means something to them you know mm -hmm. um so yeah i mean it, it's roughly more than two million now which is insane you know but um more so than that it's the people that really make that movement really powerful yeah absolutely i think it was such a like People were just so excited. Like we did a Bakers Against Racism bake sale to like at our school, and it was just such an exciting way to um, bake and sell things and feel like you're part of this community that's trying to 
push for uh, social change or how support um, the industry. Right. I think that that's the biggest takeaway is like pastry um, is there for our happiest moments and now it's there for our saddest moments, you know? Yeah. And that's pretty like poetic, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Could you talk a little bit about um, the process, the like kind of ideation process and, and the initial planning and who got involved and why the idea came about? Um, and what it was like sort of building that first wave from scratch? Um, it, it came together pretty naturally. Um, I had done this pop-up called Dona Dona, um, which was like a donut pop-up that I was baking for undocumented immigrants um, in the D.C. area. And um, that ended a month later after I started the pop-up. Um, and then the death of George Floyd happened, right? And um, it was heartbreaking because, you know, at, as a part of like the Latinx community and black community, um, we just felt like not again, you know what I mean? Not again. And it was all over social media. It was just like heartbreaking and in the middle of a pandemic, nonetheless, right? It felt gut wrenching and I just didn't know what to do or how to even go outside in a pandemic, right? Um, and uh, Chef Willa had seen what, all of DC had seen what I was doing. And Chef Willa was like, hey, you know, would you like to team up? You know, I know maybe you're tired from your donut pop up, but um, if you're able to, would you like to um, have one bake sale, one more bake sale for this event? And I said, is that enough? you know yeah. is it enough like one more bake sale for what you know are we inspiring change are we actually doing the work you know and um that's when it hit me I was like if I teach everybody what I did with my pop-ups then my reach is bigger right mm-hmm. like I can't do this alone like I might raise a thousand dollars and that's it and that's a lot of money, but it's not enough for lasting change. So, uh, you know, I got to working on this thing and I contacted Chef Rob another day and he'd make a graphic for me. And he's like, of course. And then he's like, what do you want it to say? And I'm like, well, places against racism, <laughs> you know? And he's like, oh my gosh, that's cool. Yeah, you know? And that's how he got on board. And then I brought it back to Chef Rob and Willa, because we'd be kind of like co-signing our names on it. And then we thought it was a cool idea, you know, and we launched it and it went viral, you know. Um, but I think the same feeling that Willa had, the same feeling that I had uh, of helplessness and not knowing what to do, um, we were able to like help people redirect that like insanity, you know. And with that, what do you think comes next for the restaurant industry and how does it need to cha- like change um, and move forward? There's just so much, you know. Um, I think right now what's next is survival. Um, we can talk about all these cool ideas and all these things, but if there's no restaurants left, then there's nothing to talk about anymore. Um, 
but it's just a lot, you know, like you can't just depend on our guests to, to support us, you know, it's bigger than that. Um, mm-hmm. Hopefully the government sees that and helps, you know, steps in and creates policies that protect us as employees, as owners, as people. And we'll see. I think we're, we're struggling with a lot of stuff as Americans right now. So, um, little by little we'll figure it out yeah yeah definitely it's you know we all have yet to see how everything's going to pan out and but I I do like kind of the note of hopefulness um you had before that you know I think one thing we have seen I don't know it's hard there's been a lot of obviously division and divisiveness but we also have seen a lot of people come together, like with Bakers Against Racism. So that does give me some hope that there are people yeah. out there who are willing to band together to, you know, help us survive and help make those changes that need to happen. Yeah. Um, and so kind of starting to close out, we were wondering if you have any advice for students or young people who are looking to enter the industry, looking to enter the world of food in some capacity. Um, and also maybe particularly for, um, you know, young people of color who are looking to enter. Um, just have patience. I think right now everything is so crazy. Yeah. Um, there's good bosses and good people that are in terrible situations um, that are trying their absolute best. Um, just learn as much as you can you know um i would call on youtube university um support the people that you um think are good you know and um make you feel like you have a a good place in this world and then um just be patient with yourself as well you know you're not going to learn everything in one day took me 10 years 11 years to be um, recognized as something that I've been working towards, you know, um, this journey is, is long and oftentimes very hard and difficult, but, um, you know, there's a few of us that are trying to make it easier for you guys who are coming into this industry. For sure. And I think that it, that's great advice because I feel like these days people are so unsure about what's going to happen next. I was talking to different students who are interested in entering the hospitality industry and they're just kind of so unsure about what what the industry is even going to look like. And I think now people kind of want things like instantly or more quickly. So um, having patience and recognizing that it's not just an overnight thing um, is really important. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of us, we, we hope that we go viral, but you don't want to be the supernova that burns out. You want to be um, a shining star, maybe like the North Star, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the North Star works pretty hard to be the North Star, so. <laughs> yeah, um, and now we have a final segment that we call the, the speed round. Um, so we just love to hear kind of what comes to mind these questions so the first one is what's one kitchen tool that you can't live without Bachelor. uh what's your favorite midnight snack or late night restaurant um 
Anything with fries. What's, um, who's one chef um, out there that's doing great work that you'd like to give a shout out to? Um, chef Elizabeth Faulkner, um, amazing. Also, uh, Gail Simmons, she's pretty, pretty awesome too. What's one hot take flavor combination? Um, I don't think it's flavor combination. I think it's, uh, add a little salt to your dessert. Stop serving bland yeah. desserts, please. <laughs> yep, salt and everything. <laughs> Um, and finally, the age-old question, chocolate or vanilla? Neither. I don't like dessert. That? I can't believe we just got to that hot take. <laughs> <laughs> I like making what would, you, what would you choose instead? <laughs> what would I choose instead? Uh, something with fruit. Anything fruity, especially like tropical fruits. Yep. Got it. Well... Awesome. Thank you so much, Paola, for taking the time um, to chat with us. And it was you know, such a pleasure to speak with you and hear all about what you've been doing. Of course. Thank you for having me. And that's a wrap on our conversation with Paola Velez. Check her out on Instagram at Small Orchids. And if you're in the D.C. area and are looking for some delicious treats, hit up La Bodega Bakery. You definitely won't regret it. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can shoot us an email at gourmandfoodpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram at gourmandpodcast to stay up to date with all things gourmand. Also, we're still looking for submissions for gourmand community and you can submit your pieces at gourmandpodcast.com. I'm Elena Cho. And I'm Maggie Tang. And this is Gourmand.